Hi, Daniel here. This week's episode of The Ripple is sponsored by Deps, a private Maven repository service that I run. I created Deps because I wanted to use a Maven repository to host my company's private artifacts, but I didn't want to have to run a server. There's all the hassle of setting it up, keeping it patched, monitoring it, backing everything up. It was just too much work. Deps provides a cloud-hosted Maven repository, so you can get back to focusing on what really matters. If you enjoy this podcast, consider supporting me by signing up for a trial at deps.co. Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about closure with Alex Engelberg. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hello, it's great to be here. Yes, good to have you on. So probably the most recent notable thing that you did was a talk at Closure West, uh, which has been very well received by many. <laughs> I think it was probably <laughs> one of the one of the top three most watched Closure videos from the Conj. I, oh, I think I had a quick look. So do you want to give us a little bit of background into how that talk came to be, what the thinking was behind that? Yeah, sure. So yeah, first of all, that was that was a really fun talk to prepare. Derek and I had a lot of fun making it, and I'm really glad that sort of the effort that we put into it sort of paid off, and uh, everyone seems to have gotten a, a kick out of it at least. So it's been really fun seeing people's reactions to it. And I think w- the way it came to be was, I think for a while now, I've been interested in like comedy for a while now, and uh, I've been always wanting to kind of be able to combine closure with comedy as much as possible. So I've been making kind of jokes about closure on Twitter for a while. And, uh, but I've, I've always sort of had an idea in the back of my head, it'd be funny to, to come to a closure conference and do some sort of like parody talk or sort of absurdist talk that didn't really make sense or something like that. And I've wanted to do that for a while. I mentioned this to Derek, who sort of has a similar mindset to me where he likes being funny and closure combined together. So he had sort of a a more specific idea of the specific talk of every closure talk ever, where we would sort of follow the storyline of sort of a, a random corp, if you will, you know, they had this ugly Java monolith, and then they adopted closure, and then everything was amazing and beautiful. As soon as he sort of suggested that plot line, that was sort of, I think, all the inspiration I needed to actually pitch the talk. And honestly, I'm pretty amazed that it got accepted at all. And so <laughs> we we spent a little bit of effort, Derek and I, just coming up with the talk frame, just so we would have a good enough idea to be able to put it on the talk proposal for the CFP when I submitted it. But we were careful not to spend that much effort thinking about it in case it didn't get accepted and it wasn't wasted effort. But then I submitted it and then it got accepted. I was like, wow, I guess I actually have to do this. So we spent a few months sort of off and on uh, coming up with content. And we had a lot of sort of writer's room sessions where we were trying to figure out what would be the funniest things to joke about closure. And I ran it by my coworkers at Imperity a few times and got their feedback as well. So there were a lot of rough cuts of the talk that sort of went through an editing process. And then we had to pare down some of the jokes and punch up some of them. And and then we, it hit the stage. <laughs> and then also during that time, we had to sort of think about, like, I, I knew that it would be fun at the end of the talk to end with some sort of video. And I was sort of inspired by like last week tonight with John Oliver, mm-hmm. because the way he does it is he'll, he'll sort of spend 20 minutes or so talking about something and making jokes. And then at the very end, he'll end with this short video that sort of pulls together a lot of the stuff he was talking about, but in a really funny way, usually with celebrities involved. That Since that format has really worked, and I like that format because ending with a video sort of ensures like, even if people didn't really like the talking points, 
or, or they weren't super entertained by it, then hitting them with that video at the very end will sort of leave a lasting impression on them. Uh, so I knew I wanted to end with some sort of video. So through that process of creating slides, I was also thinking in the back of my head, like what kind of video I would want to make. And so in parallel, I was sort of designing and shooting the video. And I shot the video of my coworkers um, who are featured in the closure infomercial about a week before the conference. I edited it in iMovie and all the epic voiceovers were Derek. And I got that just like in the Imperity office and I just stuck that in there. And then the rest is history. Uh, so it's not closure related, but I think I'm not sure why I found it so funny, but you've got an architecture diagram at the start and you've got the, <laughs> the load balancer and the front end server. And then when you put memcache in the middle, I just found that so funny. And then you ran out of memory on the first memcache. So you had to put a, a second memcache in front of the cache. first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, it was just, uh, I don't know why that just really, really made me laugh. Yeah. I really loved that doing that slide. There were a few iterations of that joke. Like there were a few, the d- double memcache only came in later. I think I originally had way more nodes and I talked through all of the nodes individually of the diagram and it wasn't really as funny. And I sort of extracted just the funniest parts and talked through that. And then I just figured like I should just spam them with a bunch of the other stuff. So I just put a bunch of absurd things on the slide for to, for them to look at, like the smiley face, <laughs> not a user is my personal favorite. And the kombucha yeah. node next to yes, the compute nodes. Yes, of course, yeah. I was I was just wanted to put that in there in case people, you know, noticed it. Uh, <laughs> it was a good talk. And so one of the parts that you did, which actually was a real thing, was the you created a, a threading macro at Random Corp, which is not just a, not just like, Slideware, it's actually a working thing. Oh, yeah, of course. I figured it's since it's the bread and butter of the random corp code base, I figured it has to exist in the real world for people to use if they want it. So, yeah, you can go to github.com slash random corp slash thread first thread last backwards question mark as Eric Condero Bang if you want to check it out. Great. Yeah. Well, it's um, not on Clojars, unfortunately. I didn't put in quite uh, that much effort. Okay. Right. But exercise left to the reader. Okay. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what's fun is I did not expect. Every closure talk ever to be as popular as it was, not just in the closure community, but in the programming community in general. Like it, it got near the top of uh, our programming on Reddit. Uh, right. Yep. Yeah, and I think in the comments there, people were commenting on a couple things that weren't even closure related. First of all, people noticed that uh, I put the Rust game instead of the Rust Lang logo in my programming languages slide, <laughs> which by the way, was actually an accident. It was a hundred percent an accident. And I, cause I genuinely do not know what the rest logo is. And I went to Google images to find all my programming language logos. And I typed in rust logo, not even realizing that there was a game with the same name. And that's what I got. <laughs> and also I think one of my favorite comments on the general programming post on Reddit was someone said uh, that he loved seeing the dead silence in the room when I made the joke about my nuanced hot take on types being bad. <laughs> and he's he's saying, I love the dead silence of, in the room of closureians not wanting to laugh at me making fun of type haters. <laughs> so that was pretty awesome. Yeah. I think it, it also appeared on the on the Golang subreddit because I mentioned Go. Uh, so it's the and the caption was like Go in a closure talk. So I, I'm glad I sort of reached out to the various programming sub-communities. Yeah, uh, it was a great talk. So uh, if you. you haven't seen it already, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can 
see it from there. So Derek Slager, who works with you at uh, Amperity, if yeah. I've got that name pronounced right. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a little bit about Amperity, what they do? I know they're Clojure users, but what do they use Clojure for? Yeah, so Amperity is a startup that's been around for about three years now. And we were based in Seattle and we're helping really large consumer brands make sense of their customer data. And the sort of problem we're trying to solve is, you know, if you're like a really large consumer brand, like uh, like a retailer or an airline or like a casino or something like that, then chances are your data about your own customers has sort of grown organically over your company's life because you know, your company will grow really big and you'll have different teams that manage their facets of their customer data separately. And so you'll have these sort of siloed databases just within your own company's walls so that your marketers can't make meaningful decisions about how they want to market to their own customers. So the users of the Amparity product are basically the marketers at those companies. And we work with a company to ingest data from their various systems on a day-to-day basis. And we use academic data science algorithms to stitch together their customer records and get sort of a unified view of the customer. And we expose to them sort of a synthetic database that is the result of all this merging and matching. And we also dedupe their databases and clean the data. And then we expose it to them in the form of like an interactive SQL editor or a visual segmentation editor, if they choose to go in and actually to just execute their queries over this synthetic database. And it turns out to be really, really helpful for them because there's a lot of sort of internal kind of bureaucracy and also just sort of the, the data just doesn't fit neatly together. And so without Imperity, they, uh, a marketer will have to go through lots of hoops just to even get their hands on the data and then to actually make sense out of it. So having Imperity at their disposal is really helpful. Nice. And so on the, the end, once it's all stitched together, can they like some sort of way where they can query it, mm-hmm. like they can query it back into their systems or export it as a some sort of... Yeah, so yeah. So the goal of Amparity is to be able to sort of set up like a, a pipeline that goes end-to-end that actually runs on a daily basis. So you're always getting the most up-to-date view of your customers. And one of the things we do at the end of that pipeline is, is we let you orchestrate out to various data sources. Like we could just dump a file on your SFTP server, or we can hook into a specific service like Campaign Monitor and stuff like that. Great. Nice. That's useful. I've never worked in a organization as large as any of those consumer goods companies but yeah. they, you know even even at a very small scale you very quickly end up with some data in uh, intercom and some data mm-hmm. in your email thing and some yeah. data in your actual application database and maybe your bug tracker and your uh, yeah it just mm-hmm. very quickly uh sprawls right. uh, pretty widely yeah so we use a uh, 100% closure on our back end and front end so we use closure script uh, as well. And we are hiring uh, if you are interested in working in closure at a funded startup, a uh, very exciting opportunity there. Nice. And are those jobs all uh, in Seattle based or are they remote or? Uh, we are open to remote. We have both local Seattle positions and remote positions open. Right. And I'm just looking on the website. It looks like there's quite a few people. It's not a small startup anymore. Yeah, it. I. it's really interesting because when I joined, I think I was employee like number 12 and now we're at like 80 or 90. It's pretty insane. Okay, wow. Uh, and, and that's over like three years. <laughs> and so all of the engineering is Clojure or ClojureScript. Exactly, yeah. Right. And can you talk a little bit about 
I guess, the engineering challenges you've faced growing closure code bases to that size? Because one thing I've heard a lot and experienced to a degree is that closure works really well in small teams. You hear mm-hmm. a lot of stories about, you know, we had this small team in closure and we did this thing and it, we were able to outmaneuver the 20 Java developers with like four four top yeah. gun closure programmers, which I guess is fine as far as it goes, but you don't always hear so much stories about like the next step of like we had 200 closure programmers and we managed to, you know, keep things really clean and elegant at that scale. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. And that's something we've sort of been discovering along the way. And for anyone listening to this, I would highly recommend that you go check out the the other talk that Imperity gave at ClojureCon recently. That was the more serious one of the two that we gave. <laughs> and it was given by, by one of my managers, Dave Fetterman, where he basically went into depth on like how exactly we're fostering kind of a closure learning community and actually growing with closure. So that does a pretty good job of summing it up. But from my perspective, yeah, it's definitely a challenge because I think one interesting aspect of closure is that there are a lot of ways to do something and it's tough to know, like if you're attacking a problem, like, you know, there's a lot of different ways that closure would let you solve it. And, but it's not as obvious sort of what's the most elegant way to do it or what's the cleanest. So there's definitely a lot of, like, I think our team has to sort of help each other out a lot and kind of, we have to spend a lot of energy sort of fostering a learning environment so that people can learn from each other, like what the best ways to do things are in Clojure. And as long as we sort of keep the communication flowing between our various teams and we don't keep our various engineering teams siloed from each other, I think that's the best way that we're going to sort of, uh, that we're going to avoid getting kind of out of control with Clojure, if that makes sense. Yeah. Are you using Clojure spec anywhere in the system? We are using Clojure spec. And since closure spec is obviously a very experimental thing, you know, it's still an alpha, of course, we're still kind of trying to discover where it sort of best fits into our architecture. At the moment, we've been experimenting with using it as like a sort of runtime sort of API payload validator, where if we'll expose like an Eden endpoint, and then we'll just check it against a spec. That's been well working pretty well. The way that maps and key sets sort of compose with each other has actually been lending itself pretty well to that kind of use case. Uh, the error messages on spec have been a little tough to work with in terms of exposing that as an API response, because it's not very clear if a spec fails. It's not as the error messages do have all the information you need, but it's not very easily consumable by people who call the endpoint. So that's been a sort of a challenge. And we're going to kind of ex- keep experimenting and see sort of where spec works and where it doesn't. Yeah, I've found pretty much the same as you. And mm-hmm. I mean, day eight uses closure and closure script so we have closure script people on the front end but if we didn't mm. if we had closure on the back end and javascript on the front end i can't and those people didn't know closure i can't imagine they'd be too happy about the specular messages yeah. that we're returning yeah um, i will say that that incorporating closure spec into our code base has well closure spec has been uh, very opinionated about sort of the best way to use maps and namespace keys for example, like it's it sort of enforces this philosophy of like your if you use a namespace key and a map, then that namespace keys type associated with it needs to be basically globally the same across literally all code ever. And because maps are key sets, so if you have like two different maps that have the same key, then it's like there's no way to say, oh, this key means one thing in this map, but it means another thing in this other map. So if they mean different things, you just have to rename the key, uh, which 
makes sense. But uh, but when trying to incorporate spec into an, our existing code base, where we where you didn't necessarily have that philosophy in mind when we were actually originally designing our data structures, it was sort of tough to sort of adapt to that new philosophy. We ended up having to write a couple of kind of hacky shims to make our namespace keys a little bit more flexible in the interim until we actually did things the right way. Uh, and it was a little bit painful initially. But now that we sort of understand that, it's a little bit easier to kind of get spec to work with us. But spec's sort of opinionatedness originally was a little bit tough to adapt to. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting seeing, you know, over the last two or three, I'm not sure how long spec's been, been out for, yeah, but seeing people like sort years. of yeah waking up to like namespace keywords Mm-hmm. are a thing in Clojure. Like before that, yeah. you, you would see them very, very occasionally, maybe just a symbol to like indicate stopping recursion or you know some sort of mm-hmm. use, but not so often in your data structures, apart from Datomic, of course, which is mm-hmm. all about namespace keys. So that's, yeah. yeah, that's good. So one of the tools that Imperity's created and shared with the world is a tool called Line Monolith. Um, so do you want to talk about kind of the, the genesis of that, what problems it solves for you at Imperity? Yeah, so one thing I haven't mentioned yet is that Imperity has a microservice architecture, and which means that we have, a, I think we have like maybe 20 services right now, uh, and we have, and each service is sort of its own, its, its own closure project. And we were trying to think early on as like, as soon as we knew that we wanted a microservice architecture, we were thinking like, you know, how, like, what does that mean in Clojure? And having separate projects for each service seems to make sense. But then once you have that, like, should you have different Git repositories for them or the same repository? And we ended up sort of saying that having basically a, a, a distributed projects, but having a mono repo for all of those projects together in one Git repository seem like the best combination. And one thing that helps with that is the plugin line monolith, which we created to help with that. And one of the problems when you have microservices is that inevitably you have a lot of common code that you want to share across all your different services. So you'll have this two services that depend on one sort of library project, and that'll sort of evolve and you'll have this really complex DAG basically of all of your project dependencies. And I think right now we have like 150 closure projects in the Imperity code base uh, because we just have a lot of services and a lot of uh, ways that we want to share code between those services. But what happens when you have all these different projects is Linegan doesn't make it super easy to work with multiple projects at a time. Uh, so if I'm working on service A and service B, both depend on library A, um, and I want to change something in library A and then, you know, and then have that be available while I'm developing service A, uh, then I basically, the way Linegan lets you do that is you basically have to line install on Mm -hmm. library A, and then you can like restart your REPL on service A and then get those changes. Um, The other way that Linegan helps with this is it has a feature called checkouts, which not a whole lot of people know about, but it lets you basically, uh, if you you set up sim links in your checkouts directory that point to your sub projects that are also on your file system, then it basically exposes those source files so you can reload the source files easier. But both of those strategies, they aren't super easy to work with, especially when you have as many projects as we do, because for the most part, you have to do all that stuff manually. So Line Monolith is really just kind of a shortcut to running install over a bunch of stuff at a time and also setting up your sim links in the, in the right way so you don't really have to think about it that much. So for example, like even though we have like 150 projects, each individual service probably, if you look at sort of the subtree 
of projects that it transitively depends on that are in our repo. It probably only has like 20 or 30 projects. So you can say line monolith each upstream install. And it would basically say, okay, I'm in this project and it transitively depends on all these projects. So it'll actually go look at all the projects and call install on each one. And that's really helpful when you're working on, you know, microservice architectures that depend on a lot of common code. Mm. So into line monolith to do the the relationships, it's using checkouts, but it's doing all of the tricky sim linking for you. Uh, yeah. You don't have to use that part of it. That's sort of a separate thing. You can say line monolith link, and then it'll set up all those checkouts for you. You don't have to do that. You can just say line monolith each install, and that sort of takes care of like making sure all your code is up to date. But if you actually want to get that experience of like, I want to update code in library A, and then I want to be able to call reset in my reloaded REPL, and then it'll actually go load that source file again, then you'll have to set up those checkouts. And it's pretty easy to do that. You just say line monolith link, and then it'll just look at what it needs to link to, and it'll just do it. Nice. So how does that work with uh, different editors that you use? Like I know IntelliJ has, you know, handles line checkouts and can have multiple mm. projects in a thing, but if it got to 150, that seems like a lot. How does that tooling side of things work for editors? Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, for the most part, it doesn't impact it that much. At least I will say I'm sort of the wrong person to ask because I've been only using like Emacs, which is just sort of like, you know, I edit my files and then I might connect to a REPL and that's it. It doesn't really handle that much for me aside from that. So I haven't really had to experience how that integration works. I'd have to go ask some of my coworkers who use, you know, IntelliJ, Cursive, all that stuff. But in terms of the sort of really basic workflow of I want to start a REPL in this project, then it doesn't really impact that at all. It really just sort of makes sure all of your dependencies are up to date. And then you can you could just start a REPL as normal and your editor can connect to that REPL as normal. We sort of intentionally design line monolith to not really be super intrusive to the workflow. It's just sort of, it's mostly just syntactic sugar for things that you already probably want to do. Nice. And then your are your closure specs also in this monolith? Uh, I don't think we're using closure spec in line monolith right now. It's just a line again plugin. So there isn't a whole lot of interesting data structures. Sorry, I mean, in your monolithic repository. Yeah, in our mono repo, I think we've been mostly just kind of co-locating specs in the projects that they're used. Ah, right. And so it's just kind of, um, yeah, it doesn't really impact the mono repo architecture a whole lot. It's just, it's something we're experimenting with as well. Sure, great. Uh, So another project from Imperity, which was announced pretty, it seems recently, but maybe I'm Mm -hmm. I'm misremembering it, um, is Greenlight, which is a integration testing framework tool yeah. uh, for Clojure. So can you talk about what that is? What's that, what problem that's solving for you? Yeah. So Greenlight came from sort of when we were trying to write integration tests against our various services. The main problem that I've noticed when I'm trying to write those kinds of tests is oh, uh, our services, which I assume a lot of other people's services are like this, is uh, we expose some endpoints to let you create certain resources and you, you can create, read, update, delete, all that stuff. But when you create a resource, that'll usually return, like if I'm posting to some endpoint, it'll return this this resource, which has some ID associated with it. And that ID is probably going to be some unique ID randomly generated. So I can't predict exactly everything about this resource that's coming back. So I'll get that resource. And then I want to do some other tests that interact with that resource or call some other endpoint with the ID of this resource that I just created. And what I've noticed is when I want to write complex tests around that sort of type of API, 
I'll get into the situation where I'll I'll say post to the resource, take the response body, and then I'll like say let the ID be the the keyword ID of that response body, and then all all the rest of my test has to be embedded in that let because then I have to refer back to that ID. Yep. Uh, so I'll basically have to take that ID and then shove it somewhere so that later I can pull it out and uh, do something with it. And this way of doing things also makes it really hard to write composable tests. Because if I want to write a composable sort of step of my test suite that does a certain thing with this resource, I have to parameterize that ID now. So like I'll have to add yet another input to my my function signature or N inputs where N is the number of types of resources I've been dealing with because all of those have some ID and I have to pass all those IDs to this composable step. Makes it a little bit hard to write reusable components of this thing. So the way Greenlight sort of solves this is it lets you write your test suites in a series of steps, or it, it calls it a green light step, basically. And it's pretty lightweight, but it basically just keeps a map of all the IDs, and it lets each step kind of pull things out of the context or put things into the context as needed. So you could write a step that says, uh, like, I want to create a foo, and the behavior of that step will be call this post endpoint, and then put the ID, like, associate the ID into the context map. And then that's the result of that. Uh, step. And then another step could be like create a bar, which like has a foreign key on the foo ID. So then that the bar step, I'll define that as it'll look in the context for the foo ID that was presumably put in by the create foo step. And then it will create a bar with that ID. So it allows you to write composable steps that work together really well. It sort of solves the problem of having a lot of variables to keep track of, of all the different IDs you're working with. And so we took that idea and kind of wrapped a little API around it to write your own integration tests. And we have sort of colorized output where it'll kind of look nice as the test is running. uh, And you can see the various steps and how long they took, and it'll automatically time them out if they're ticking too long. So it's just kind of a a bunch of little utilities that we wanted to make better for us uh, when we were writing integration tests for our microservices. Nice. That sounds pretty useful if you've got a lot of of different communicating services. Uh, Yeah, exactly. I definitely know that that pain of create something, pull the ID out, and you know drag it around with you for the rest of the test. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's very cool. Are there any other open source projects Ampurity have got, or maybe ones that you can give us a sneak preview on uh, that you're going to be releasing soon? Yeah, we have like five open source repositories right now. The other sort of notable one that I'm personally the sort of owner of that I'll at least mention is something called Envoy, and Envoy is sort of just a wrapper around another existing library called Environ, which I think a lot of people have used. And Environ is a mixture of a library and a Linegan plugin where it'll let you, it's just kind of a better way to interact with basically environment variables or JVM properties. So Environ lets you pull keywords out of like an, an env map that it'll basically look in a few different places and take care of looking in your environment variables and your JVM properties and like a, a set of manual keys that you set in your project.clj. So it'll check three places. So it's a little bit easier to work with environment variables. And then Envoy, which is Amparity's sort of take on it, is a wrapper of Environ where in on top of getting the sort of easy environment variable lookups, you can be a little bit more diligent about defining your environment variables. So we have a macro called defenv, where you give it a keyword, and then you say, like, I'm defining this environment variable. So then you can later say, uh, hey, Envoy, please print out all the environment variables that this project supports, and then it'll actually give you an ASCII table of all the different environment variables. 
So that's kind of nice. And additionally, it has a little bit more predictable behavior of if, a, if an environment variable isn't there, you can specify, oh, I want it to error if this environment variable isn't there, or I want it to warn or something like that. So it allows you to be a little bit more diligent about kind of the behaviors associated with those. And it also gives you automatic type coercion. So I can say uh, defenv HTTP port uh, type integer. And then it really just saves you the step of calling integer parse int on whatever string you get back from uh, the HTTP port that was set. So that's basically it. It's a bunch of little goodies regarding pulling stuff out of your JVM environment um, that we use pretty consistently across our code base. And it's just really nice. Yeah, one thing I saw in there, which I hadn't really seen any other projects do before, but I thought it was a very good idea, was tracking the number of accesses of different environment variables. Oh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that Envoy does as well. So, so yes, yeah, yeah if that's, you want, that's what I mean. Yeah, gotcha, Envoy. Yeah. yeah, so if you want, you can say, you know, grab the accesses and then just see how many times the environment variable has been accessed, which is also pretty nice. Yeah, I imagine you could use that to discover if stuff is not being used very much or being over mm-hmm. overfetched when it should just be passed around in a component map or yeah it's also nice to know if you're thinking about like phasing out a certain environment variable and you know, it's like i want to make sure that no one's actually using this before i like stop setting it in a certain context right nice so that's kind of uh, amperity i th- i think a uh, pretty good overview um but you've also been working on closure stuff uh, before amperity so probably the most well-known project you've been involved in i'd say would be instapass with your father um yeah. so i mean there's, there's lots of talks and things about instapass out there so i mean i can refer people to those but kind of is there anything you've got in mind for instapass in the future kind of where do you see going is it pretty stable anything interesting yeah it's pretty stable at the moment uh we you know we we try to be responsive to you know issues if there's some important bugs we need to fix but it seems pretty stable so far and what's sort of interesting about instaparse is uh neither my dad nor i actually sort of use it in in any sort of professional context we sort of made it out, out of sort of a curiosity and then it ended up being super useful so we've been sort of maintaining it and trying to help people out with it so it's pretty rare that I'll come up with something that Instaparse needs. So I've been trying to sort of listen to the community and see what kind of needs to be solved. The main thing that I'm not sure if I'll sort of have time to really dive into this in the near future, but a sort of problem I've been thinking about is the problem of ambiguous grammars. And one of Instaparse's sort of value propositions is like, like you can bring any grammar to Instaparse and it'll just work, which is true. And it uses a sort of advanced data flow algorithm to resolve the parse results in a way that lets it support certain types of parsers that other parser engines cannot support, like left recursive grammars or ambiguous grammars. And an ambiguous grammar is basically is something like, it's essentially if your parser can generate multiple possible parse trees for the same string. And while Instaparse can support all these different types of parsers, usually in practice, when someone ends up with an ambiguous grammar, it ends up being really slow because what will happen is the various nodes in the parser engine will be generating redundant valid results for the various chunks of your string. And that'll cause the entire parse to be really slow uh, or, or it'll like grow exponentially. The number one thing that I'm asked on like the Instaparse mailing list these days is sort of like, hey, my parser is slow. Can you help me figure out why? And the answer is always, you know, there's an ambiguous part of your parser, which is honestly, it's kind of hard to spot uh, because Instaparse is so flexible. Sometimes people don't realize kind of the way that their 
making their grammars less performant than they should be. And so a problem that I've been thinking about for maybe the future of Instaparse uh, might be a future feature someday is some way to track how ambiguous your grammar is or be able to sort of like go through some sort of wizard or or it'll emit some warnings if it notices that a certain sort of part of your grammar is known to be ambiguous and it'll call that out for you and maybe suggest a way to fix it or something like that. Um, because I think it, in theory, I've been thinking, I haven't think, thought about this too much yet, but it feels like that should be a solvable problem from like an automated standpoint of like, I should be able to look at a grammar and, or I should be able to analyze the parser as it's running and then see if some part of the parser is ambiguous. So that's something I've been sort of thinking about. Great. I should have asked before uh, when I led into this topic, but can you just explain what Instapass is and what a grammar is for people who might not be familiar with those things? Yeah. Uh, so Instaparse is a is a closure library that it lets you specify a parser by uh, typing in a in grammar in the EBNF notation, and it basically it helps you turn your strings into data. Uh, so you give it a parser uh, by typing in the EBNF notation, and it will give you back basically a, just a function you can call on strings to turn it into some sort of Eden data structure. And the sort of best use case for Instaparse that I've seen is if someone is working with like a custom DSL or a custom data format or something like that, um, like or some weird flavor of JSON that isn't actually valid JSON, but then they can write an Instaparse grammar to parse that data and then turn it into closure in memory data structures so that it's easier for them to write uh, the logic they need to write over that data. Nice. I've done a little bit of with Instaparse, um, parsing sort of a very ambiguous uh like program times because they're just input by a human and uh, they can be thursday or thu <laughs> or all sorts of different uh variants yeah. of that um so we're able to build up a, a parser to resolve that pretty well yeah and kind of the last um this is a little bit lighter than than the other projects <laughs> um but um i saw recently you and uh, reed mckenzie i think we're working on a little website called Perrin party. Uh, so what, what's yeah. that? Uh, yeah. So the, I think it'd be better, better to explain the sort of story behind why, why I decided to do that. Uh, basically a few months ago, uh, Reed was like trying to find like domain names to buy. And he noticed that paren.party was available. We had no idea like what we would use it for. Uh, we, was, we were thinking like, maybe like, Oh, we can maybe make a Mastodon server or something like that. Uh, but he just <laughs> bought the domain name compulsively and he sort of sat on it for a couple months. And then we brought it up in conversation again more recently and sort of as a joke, I said like, in the meantime, like it would be cool if paren.party had a webpage of just a bunch of parens dancing around set to music. And, uh, and Reed was like, if you make that, I will host it. So I said, challenge accepted. And so that night I just sort of threw it together. And if you go to paren.party, it is now a webpage where parens are dancing around set to music. So mission accomplished. And that was just, I guess, my commitment to the bit. <laughs> but the way I put that together, I believe, was I just used Closure Script and Reagent, where I am. I probably broke all the rules of front end animation when I was writing that because I'm essentially what I'm doing is I think like you know thirty or sixty frames per second. I forget which. I am. I am updating a reagent atom with the state of all the, of like the positions of where all the parens need to be. And then that is getting basically re-rendered uh, in real time, every single frame. So I don't think that's how you're supposed to do this, 
I probably should have set like tweens and stuff and done things the right way, but I hadn't found, I didn't know what, how to do that in ClojureScript. So I just kind of did the way I know. And it seemed to not completely break my browser. But if I go on my phone and I look at Paren Party, then my phone will start to get warm after a while. So something's probably wrong there. And then the music, I just wrote it. I made it in GarageBand and I just rendered out like a minute long loop and I just played it on loop and it's just like hosted in an S3 bucket. So yeah, <laughs> I I don't know why I did that, but people seem to enjoy it. And I don't know, I get happier when I look at Paren Party. So I'm glad that it exists. Great. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's good. Uh, maybe can be, people can put it on at Christmas time. And- yeah. <laughs> So uh, I think those are kind of the the most notable things to talk about. Um, I just want to remind people Amperity is hiring there. So uh, if you want to join a closure front and back place, mm-hmm. it seems like a pretty... Yeah. Pretty- also, uh, if you are in the Seattle area, we, we are also hosting at the moment the Seattle Closure Users Group, which is a monthly meetup first Thursday of every month. And its nickname is Seizure, which is a... It's a Great name, I think, which you can give, I think, Phil Hagelberg credit for. And you should stop by the Imperity offices and check out the meetup. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks very much. And look forward to seeing your both joke projects and real projects in the future. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Great.